The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning. I'm Allison Jacks, Associate Minister here at UUSF. I want to thank you for being here for this morning's service. Yesterday, we celebrated Juneteenth. Today, Father's Day. And tomorrow, we mark the first day of summer with the summer solstice. In the midst of celebrations and remembrances, we are so glad to have you join us. Worship is a collective endeavor, and I want to thank everyone who helped make this morning's worship possible. Jonathan Silk, our AV and sound expert, Eric Shackelford and Shuleyong on camera, Tumari Magaloni Ramos, our worship associate. Today marks Mari's first official role as a worship associate, and I'm thrilled to have her join me this morning in worship. Joe Chapeau, who is monitoring our live stream chat. Our musicians this morning, Andre Vera, Mihua Steger, Brielle Marina Nielsen, and Mark Sumner. And Andres told us this morning this is his first time publicly playing the double bass. So we're thrilled about that. Thanks to Athena Papadakos for our beautiful flowers this morning, to Thomas Brown, our sexton, and to Alex Darr, Les James, and Tom Brookshire, who are hosting our virtual coffee hour, which will happen after the service. If you are here for the first time, I encourage you to download the order of service this morning. You can follow along. You can access it in the description of the video, and it's posted in our chat. And so we begin by lighting a candle, as we have each week since March 2020, in honor of all of you bringing your spirit into this space. Join me now in singing our opening hymn, Gather the Spirit.
to all. Um, all of us have been navigating the past 15 months of the pandemic and shutdown. Finding connection has been more important than ever. Our congregation's small group ministry program has been an important way to accomplish that in the past year and a half. Today we thank and recognize our facilitators Elaine Pratt, Joyce Levy, Megan Lieber, Eric Shackelford, myself, Margaret Levitt, and Greg Biggs, and Casey Christian. We also expressed our deep gratitude to Minister Emeretta Margot Campbell-Gross, who continues to serve as our spiritual advisor to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Today, we thank Bobby Kovac for having uh, served as a co-coordinator of the program over the past two years and keeping the program on track despite the challenges of the global pandemic. We celebrate that nearly 40 congregation members participated this year and were able to conduct service projects. We also welcome Millie Phillips, who will now be co-coordinating the program with me over the next year. Welcome and thank you, Millie. As Reverend Allison said, our summer session will be held each Sunday in August by Zoom from 1 to 2.30 p.m. You can sign up for the sessions through the website or the link in the weekly Flame newsletter. In July, we will have acute question and answer breakout sessions about small group ministry during the virtual coffee hour. We will be starting our fall spring series in October. So watch for the details on the series and we plan to include details in one of the September Sunday services. I hope you will join this wonderful program. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby, Millie, and Greg. I believe this is all I wanted to call our attention to, so let's center ourselves now in worship by singing our meditation on breathing. breathing. The words are found in your order of service. If the song is new to you, you can listen through to the song leaders the first time and then join in singing as it's comfortable. We'll sing together a few, through a few times. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out. 
We now invite you to join us in reciting our covenant and singing our doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have since July of 2019, for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps. For the mounting trauma to children separated from their families, for all people held without charges in less than transparent or humane circumstances, in this repeat of some of the most shameful chapters in our nations and our world's history of xenophobia, racism, and greed. We ring the gong seven times for this week of days in which human dignity has been dismissed and for our responsibility for that as citizens of this country. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This week, 59,123 people died of COVID-19 globally, 2,212 in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses each one of those people precious and worthy of health and safety. And we hold in gratitude all who are working around the world to produce and distribute vaccines and all other efforts to support greater health, survival, and immunity from the virus. So much to remember and hold. May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
Let us join our hearts and gather in a time of silent and spoken prayer and meditation. We enter into this time of quiet reflection, resting into the gentle rhythm of the breath, attending to each slow inhalation and exhalation. Allow your body to relax into the rhythm and take respite in the silence. spirit of life and love that moves in us and around us. We gather at this time to give thanks for the beauty of this day, for the time we've given ourselves to attend to our spirit, to connect to the holy that lives within each of us. We gather bringing all that we are, our joys and jubilations, our pain and our sorrows, our hopes and visions. We pray for peace by putting our hands together to collectively create a world where love reigns supreme and justice rolls like the waters. Spirit of life, we give thanks for this day and open our hearts in gratitude for the blessings that come to us and to the blessings we offer to others. Amen.
Happy Father's Day. My father's name was Ignacio Magaloni Salazar. When he was 13 years old, his father, a poet, moved his family from Mexico City to an isolated fisherman village called La Ribera de Tampico Alto in Veracruz in order to make it economically feasible to continue writing. The move proved to be the most formative event in my father's life. When I was a child living in Tampico, Tamaulipas, and later when I was a teen visiting from the U.S., we would reconnect with our family in La Ribera. It was difficult to reach. You had to cross the wide Panuco River, which creates the border between the states of Tamaulipas and Veracruz. I remember excitedly braving small wooden ferries full to overflowing with people, chickens, and wares. We would wobble across the water from the bustling banks of Tamaulipas to the green wild banks of Veracruz, where we would climb into taxis waiting on unpaved roads to weave and bounce us to our sultry tropical destination. My father became a fisherman when his family moved to La Ribera and so loved and integrated himself with the community that to this day, when I remember him, I always see him beaming with pride, paddle in hand at the seat nearest the stern of one of the classic green skiffs he used to fish in. Maybe because he was the son of a poet, my father was an amazing storyteller. My favorite story was the one about the time that he and his friends got caught in a hurricane during a fishing expedition. They would travel far out into the Gulf of Mexico and would be out to sea for days at a time on a fishing vessel that had their small fishing skiffs attached to its sides with ropes. The day the hurricane caught up to them, they were returning home with a full haul, which was essential for the means and sustenance of the entire village. The waves got so high that they feared they would lose the main vessel if they didn't release their boats, which were destabilizing it as they tumbled about in the roiling waters. But these were not rich men. Their nets and their lures were made by hand. Each boat was hard to come by and represented a livelihood. The idea of losing even one was agonizing. The waves got higher and higher so my father and his friends did the impossible. They cut the ropes and jumped into the water to try to catch their boats. My father described being in the giant waves trying to reach his boat. He remembers seeing it above him when the waves lifted it and then looking down at the boat when the waves lifted him. He swam with everything he had as he attempted to time the rhythm of the waves in order to throw himself into the little boat when he was above it. He succeeded. And then the real ride began. He lay down in the hull and held on for dear life. Eventually, the hurricane subsided, leaving my exhausted father and the little boat on a shore far from the village. It took him a couple of days to work his way back home. Thankfully, all of the fishermen, the main vessel, and the essential hull were saved. I never tired of listening to my father tell this story. Even now, 
I marvel at the quality of the love and the unshakable commitment to the village that elicited the type of courage that these men showed. I witnessed my father's tenacity and determination throughout my life. When his source of income dried up in Mexico, my father left my mother, me, and my three brothers with our maternal grandmother in Tampico and came to the U.S. to look for work. After almost a year, he called for us. I remember the evening he picked us up. We arrived on a Greyhound bus with only a few mismatched suitcases and some treats that my mother's family had given us for the journey. And there he was. The second I saw my father, I knew that everything would be all right. Like the canoes in his story, he had to cut us loose for a while. But we were always in his sight. And as he wrapped his arms around us, we knew that he would never let us go. He was our main vessel, full to the brim with hope. Feliz Dia de los Padres, Papi, wherever you are. From Infinitely Full of Hope, Fatherhood and the Future in an Age of Crisis and Disaster by Tom Wyman. 
The reading this morning is from a diary entry written when Tom Wyman learned he was to be a father. I saw you for the first time today on an ultrasound screen streamed from your mam's belly. Until now, they'd all looked basically the same. The miracle of life reduced to a few abstract squiggles, a dull collection of gray blurs. Nothing, however, could prepare me for what it feels like when those blurs are yours. Something about our upbringings had left your mam and I convinced that we weren't really real people, that there was something about us that was less than legitimate, that our thoughts, desires, and biologies were not quite on the same level as the thoughts, desires, and biologies of other people. And as far as I was concerned, in those shapes on the screen that were you, 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 I was manifested not only a certain sort of proof, proof that I was definitely, despite what I'd always feared, a real person, a living creature capable of producing or at least fathering life, but also a certain demand. The weight that these shapes who are you would rely on me more than anyone else, along with their mother, to form them, that is you, into a person to help you be able to live a good life. And so at that exact moment when I, when I could finally say I was myself, I was also taken completely beyond myself. I don't really matter anymore. You, you are what matters. And so I responded by doing what? <laughs> I started crying.
After seeing the sonogram, Wyman wrote, you are quite possibly the most important person I will ever meet. You will completely transform every aspect of my life, my world, my orientation towards everything I experience. You are the best thing I have ever seen, and I am so happy. Probably I have never been before in my life. But then I've never really been the sort of person, have I, to just accept my happiness at face value. Your existence, as I said, demands something of me. It calls me to help you live a good life. And so seeing you as I did today thus poses me, I know it must sound a little silly to express it this way, given the circumstances, but there are only, they're the only words I can find. It's a particular philosophical problem. Because is such a good life possible for you, for any child born today, for anyone who might one day be alive in this world at all? And if it's not, what then? Indeed, what then? It's not just a first-time father who happens to be a philosopher that wonders about the future, the chances for a good life for their children, the demands and joys that parenting requires, all those feelings and questions, concerns bundled together. This is a question I'm sure parents throughout the ages have asked and all have worried about the same thing. But this question of the good life, the responsibilities to make sure that life goes on is not just for parents, it's for all grown-ups. How will I bring something life-affirming, some form of life's flourishings, something generative into the world? How do I learn to raise some hope, send it out into the world, do some good long after I'm gone? We find ourselves in precarious times. We are part of an ecosystem ravaged by racism, rising temperatures, the onslaught of climate destruction, cultural and class divisions, endless wars and systemic violence, haywire politics, and the devastation of a global pandemic. Despair is everywhere, leading us into states of cynicism, resignation, or worse, fatalism. What future, we might ask? My father's father found himself in such a place. He came to America as a teenager, leaving behind his family in Latvia with hopes and expectations of making a good life for himself and his family back home. Relatives took him in, but it was for him to make his way. He became a hat salesman traveling the eastern shoreboard. Eventually, he married and had two children. Money was always tight and poverty was just around the corner. My grandparents fought bitterly. My father and aunt told stories of cowering in the kitchen pantry while tempers flew. And then came the worst of the worst. My grandfather, it's believed, 
committed suicide. He disappeared on a sales trip, traveling on a boat to New York. His body was never found. Hope in the Jacks family was hard to find. For my father, hope arrived when aunts and uncles and cousins reached out and drew him in. School was a sanctuary and the synagogue gave structure. Out of the loss and despair, some light made its way in. School, fraternity, extended family, and faith gave my father a reason to hope. He was forward-focused and rarely looked back. And when his chance came to raise a little hope, he reveled in it. This is the thing about hope. We need to nurture it. Hope keeps us going. We need to fight that heavy pull of fatalism and instead brace, embrace our inner natalist, the one who sees the beauty and the possibility in life and in bringing things to life. We need to believe in the inherent good that comes out of our creations and help sustain and nurture all life. Being hopeful is hard work, but it's the work that is most needed right now. Hope, says the famous bachelor philosopher Immanuel Kant, is what undergirds all things. Without it, we are doomed to an endless and pointless toil. Kant wrote that we have a responsibility to be hopeful, to look forward, to imagine, and bring something worthy, something life-giving into the world. I think that's what Tom saw when he stared into that sonogram. In that instance, he knew, he saw his life anew, that there would be life beyond him. He was now part of a larger story. What I think Tom felt was an active hope not that kind that sits on the couch waiting for hope to magically arrive. Rather, active hope is when we take responsibility, cultivate it, and put it into practice. It is a hope that's willing to get a little dirty, mix it up, take some risks. We need to teach ourselves to be hopeful people, and we need teachers to teach us. Kant, as I said, believed that hope was what undergirds all things. Why, there, why bother knowing anything if there's nowhere to go? Others, other thinkers see hope as an emotional response, a deep feeling that calls you forward. For the ancient philosophers, hope was a virtue, a moral good, something to practice and perfect. And then there's deep hope, an idea promoted by the religion scholar Mark Riker. Deep hope, says Riker, is rooted in togetherness. A togetherness is not a togetherness that is not future directed, but fully present. He writes, this kind of present hope has a rich history in cultures that have endured tremendous suffering. 
Deep hope is a way of being together in the face of what is. Connected to purpose, a hope in action that seeks to rebuild what is broken. This kind of deep hope is rooted in the story of Juneteenth which celebrated its 155th anniversary yesterday and this past Friday was declared a national holiday. Juneteenth is the day when news finally reached Texas, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was delivered that slavery was abolished. Imagine the deep hope needed to carry the light through the evils of slavery, Jim Crow, civil rights, Black Lives Matter. We have a moral responsibility to keep this deep hope alive. For our father philosopher, Tom Wyman, hope is an attitude that we carry with us and bring into the world that attitude seeks out possibilities, looks to the future and takes action. Maybe you plant a little hope or build it, nurture it at the playground, study hope, sing about it, speak it out loud, or whisper it into someone's ear. Maybe you write a tell-all book sharing all of hope's secrets. Or maybe you pick up a tattered cloth and slowly stitch it back together. However we go about raising a little hope, we must practice together and learn from each other as best as we can. Hope can't do it alone. It needs us. If we say yes to life, we must fight the impulse to give in to fatalism and not let our hearts Pardon. But how to keep from being hardened? That was on the mind of the, and heart of father and poet Ahmad Johnson, talking about raising two black sons. He asks, how do I protect their hearts from being hardened? How do I encourage them to love History is helpful, he says. Family, culture. We are here because we are people who chose how to anticipate a better life. We try and remodel that beauty, self-care, how we demonstrate that love as a couple so they know they are supported and that they are a product of something special. Beauty, family, history. Self-care, support, love, these are the things that can soften the heart and let hope in. Philosopher Theodore Adorno grew up in Germany during World War II. The devastation of the war had left people despairing, disconnected and isolated from each other. How, he wondered, would hope rise up from the ashes of war? 
The answer to the despair, he wrote, was to seek redemption and bring forward our compassion. This softening of the heart helps us think of ourselves and makes us aware that something is wrong. We must teach our children to be sensitive in the first instance of their own suffering. Help them understand suffering in others and in themselves. Then we must first be practitioners of compassion and believers in redemption. We must show them through attitude and action that out of hardship, life can break through. We are part of a greater whole, stitched together across time. It is both our responsibility and I hope our desire to keep stitching the story of how life continues to grow and flourish after we're gone. It will take softened hearts and a can-do attitude. This is what hope asks of us. Hope is calling us to action. I think of Mari's father wrestling to save his boat and save himself. What lifted him up out of those waters? I think it was hope. Hope that was nurtured by family and a community that held him. A hope that carried him and then his family from Tampico to Texas. Here's the thing about hope. It's bigger than you and me. Hope, like any child, makes a demand of us to see beyond ourselves. We are the ones who must keep hope alive for those who will follow and pick up the thread. One last story before we go. A few months ago, the children's author Eric Carle died at the age of 91. When he was young, he hoped to be a builder of bridges. Instead, he became an illustrator and writer. Carl is the author of The Hungry Caterpillar, one of many of his beloved books. In an interview, he recalled moving back to Germany as a young boy following the war. He and his father took frequent walks in nearby meadows, exploring all the bugs and butterflies, peeling back the bark to see who lived there, but always putting the back bark in place in respect to nature. In the story, we meet a young caterpillar who eats his way through fruits and berries, sandwiches and sweets, filling his belly until it's time to build his cocoon. And slowly, he emerges, transformed into a colorful butterfly. This simple story has inspired children for over 50 years, inviting them to explore the idea of how life emerges and how life is transforming. It's a story of hope, Carl says. Children need hope. Indeed, they do.
Friends, there are hurricanes to come and there are fires in our future. Some will say it's time to lift the fatalist flag and call it quits. I say no. There's a different picture, one you saw in a sonogram or heard in a song. Maybe a writer wrote it straight from the heart and you felt something loosen. Or you crossed a bridge only to find an open vista. Dear ones, dear, dear ones, dare yourself to feel the pulse of life flourishing all around you. That pulse that has been moving since the beginning of time and brought you here. You, you, you. And it has a request. Don't give up. Life is counting on you to see it through. And P.S. Tom and Edie had a beautiful baby boy. See 
leaving, let us hold on to this, the enduring of love, the persisting of hope, the remembering of joy, the offering of gratitude, the receiving of grace, and the blessings of peace. Go in peace. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.